Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live in Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers share stories inspired by the theme, Going Home, Stories of Returning. We are back with in-person audiences and rebooting by returning to themes from our first season over 10 years ago. Our first featured storyteller, Elaine Ambrose, was a part of that season and returns to our stage. She is followed by first-time storytellers Laura Abbott and Kevin Winslow. It's story time. Please welcome back Elaine Ambrose. You did. Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. I'm so excited to see all of you because we've just been home and it's fun to get out and be human again and see all my friends. And thank you. Thank you for being here. My story starts in Todos Santos, Mexico. It's on the Baja Peninsula on the lower half of the peninsula next to the Pacific Ocean. I was there in June and Todos Santos is made famous by the song Hotel California. There's a landmark there called the Hotel California. And the last line is, you can check out, but you can never leave. That almost happened to me. (laughs) I was speaking at a writer's conference in June at a, a boutique hotel called Pachamama. And it was wonderful because it was totally unplugged. That meant no cell phone, no internet, And if you're going to die, it's a bad place to be in that situation. (laughs) So I had given my presentation. The only place where the internet was, was available was in the great room where we ate and where I gave my workshops. And so I gave my workshops. I do a writing workshop about playing music, and I have the participants write their stories according to the music that prompts them. And it's always a wonderful, rewarding experience. The retreat lasted five days, and at the last evening, I was in my room. I had a wonderful room all by myself. I love traveling by myself. And the, the door opened up into a courtyard overlooking the Pacific Ocean. It was lovely, and I, I enjoyed being there. The final night, I packed my carry-on. I have a rule when I travel. I only take enough that I can run with in an airport. <laughs> so I had my little carry-on all packed and ready to go. And I went to sleep listening to the sounds of the ocean. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, someone tried to kill me. (laughs) I woke. Someone was sitting on my chest. They had a pillow over my face. They were trying to kill me. I rolled and I moaned with a guttural noise from the bottom of my gut. And I started flailing my arms and I kicked my feet. And I rolled and I rolled and I finally reached over and turned on the light expecting to see someone in my room. There was no one there. My door was still closed. I had been trying to kill myself. This was not good. I did not like the feeling. It hurt. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have internet. I did not have the strength to crawl out of my bed, to crawl into the patio, to crawl to the next door and bang to get somebody to help me. So I sat up the rest of the night. I was afraid to lie down. Finally, the sun came up. I unloaded half the stuff in my suitcase 
to make it lighter so I could carry it downstairs. I got dressed and made it downstairs to the great room where there was internet. I got online, got to my airline, and requested a wheelchair. I was going home. That's all I wanted was to go home. I didn't tell anybody at the conference about what had happened to me because I thought they would take me to the hospital. And uh, being in a Mexican hospital 3,000 miles away from my family in Idaho was not optimal. I only know two, Span two Spanish sentences. Donde esta el baño? <laughs> Which is, where's the bathroom? And mas vino tinto, por favor? <laughs> Which is more red wine, please. And uh, these are key sentences to know in Spanish, but I didn't want to know them in a hospital. So I got on the van, they had hired a van to take me to the airport in, total, in uh, Cabo. Cabo was 90 minutes away. <clears throat> so I got my little carry-on, it was much lighter now, put on my mask, and started a 12-hour journey to get home. That's all I wanted, was to get home. I arrived at the airport in Cabo, they had a wheelchair, and I, find, I really appreciate wheelchairs now. If you've ever been through security and when you have to go through all the customs in a foreign airport, they wheeled me right on by and I just kind of waved. <laughs> all those people standing in line for an hour and a half to get through security at Cabo. Another advantage of the wheelchair, first online to the plane. I didn't know this. I'm going to have to have a wheelchair every time. First online in the plane, and I finally sat down in that seat, and I buckled, and first I'd ask somebody to help me put the luggage up in the overhead bin. It was easy, because it was so light, there was nothing in it. But I sat in my chair, and the moment the plane took off to leave for the United States, I fell asleep. I fell in a deep sleep, because I had been up all night. I dreamed of my hometown of Wendell, Idaho. You've probably been to Wendell shopping? or to see the sights. It has a population of 1,000 when I grew up there. My father was born in Wendell. My parents both attended Wendell High School. My brothers and I attended Wendell High School. And Wendell will be my final resting place. My father bought six cemetery plots. And both my parents have passed, my brothers have passed, and my sister's buried there. And there's one plot left. That's for me, and I'm not using it yet. So I dreamed about Wendell. I had a paper route in Wendell. I rode my little bicycle and delivered 70 copies of the Twin Falls Times News because there were 70 people in Wendell who could read. <laughs> Maybe it was 69, I don't know. But I had a wonderful time in Wendell on my little paper route, and I was dreaming about how I got a fear of dogs. And I would come up to these houses, and there would be these dogs chasing me and trying to bite me. And there was one big collie, and he put his big paws on my shoulder, and he had a big, ugly head, and he was making strange, guttural noises. But that was good, because it prepared me for my dates at the University of Idaho. <laughs> so, I digress. The plane landed in San Francisco. And immediately I was overcome with emotion. I was back in the USA. I was going home. And again, there was a wheelchair. And they took me through customs. And for the rest of you who have been through customs at San Francisco and knows it takes two hours, I was just wheeled right on by. And again, I waved and got through customs. They didn't have much to look through, my luggage. I had my passport. And they got me on the plane. 
I was so close to getting home. And that's all I cared about. <clears throat> Plane took off for Boise. By this time, it had been about eight hours, traveling with a mask on, not being able to breathe. I was still panting for air. And I asked somebody to put my luggage up. The plane took off. And we landed in Boise an hour and a half later. I'm not a crier. I was raised not to cry. I was raised on a farm. You be tough, suffer. When that plane landed in Boise, the tears started to fall. And so I had a dirty, wet mask on my face. It was like a diaper. <laughs> I didn't care. I was in Boise. I asked somebody to get my luggage down, and again, there was a wheelchair. And they hauled me out, and they put me out on the curb. My granddaughter was there to pick me up. I had bribed her. I was paying her some college money if she would pick me up from the airport. She took me home. I had made it home. I ripped off my mask and threw it away. The next week brought an assortment of cardiologists and doctor's appointments and all these different tests and medications. And yes, I'd had a heart attack in Mexico. And why did you get home? I did, because I wanted to get home. I have cardiomyopathy. I have a little valve that doesn't work, and it's really irritating me. It only does a what they call an ejection fraction of 30%. You need 60% if you're going to live. So I might just die right here on stage, so it would be a really hard act to follow. But I have 30%, so I've been given all these medications. I had an echocardiogram. I had an angiogram. An angiogram is where I'm lying nude in the surgery room with five men surrounding me. And, and I say, I usually get the name of a man before I get naked in bed. I had a mask on, though. So that helped. The doctors didn't laugh. I, I, I then they went into my groin, up through my body, into my heart with these instruments. And I, I was awake. I knew they were doing that. And I said, did you find Waldo? <laughs> Again, no laughter. I do believe I'm going to give a humor workshop to the cardiologist at St. Luke's Hospital. <laughs> but they opened up the little valve that wasn't working and um, <clears throat> put me on different medications, which really were horrible. They really messed me up. So I had to go back for other tests, another MRI. And I'm still at 30%, and it, which is irritating me because I like to win. So I'm going back next week for an echophysiologist. I'm learning all these big words. we got to get my heart working. I am not going to get that cemetery plot yet in Wendell. Yeah. So two things I learned from my vision, from my quest to get home. One, I'm surrounded by angels. I'm so grateful for my angels. When I was suffering in my hotel room, and I called on the universe, and I called on the angels, and I called on every Bible story my mother ever taught me, give me home, and they got me home. I'll never see those people again. I'll never see the people who pushed my wheelchair through three different airports. I'll never see the kind gentleman who put my luggage down from the luggage rack. I'll never see the man who drove the van to get me to the airport. But I appreciate them, and I know they're there. The second lesson I learned from my 12-hour odyssey, I'm done with travel. I recently donated my suitcases. I grew up on a farm in Wendell, Idaho, and as, as I was reading the National Geographics of my grandparents, I said, I'm going to go there, and I did. 
I've been to Egypt to the pyramids. I've been to India to see the Taj Mahal. I've been on a safari in South Africa. I rode a bull elephant in Nepal and watched a wild tiger kill a mountain lion. I have been singing in cathedrals in Europe. I have walked three days with a backpack across the Haleakala Crater in Maui. I went on a zip line with a spiritual teacher in Costa Rica. I have done, I have been, I have seen, and I'm grateful. And I'm grateful to be alive. And as I learned these stories from my doctors, and they told me three things. They said, avoid salt. I said, I like chips and dip. They said, too bad. <laughs> they said, avoid alcohol. I said, ha! <laughs> my best-selling book is titled Midlife Cabernet. <laughs> Not a chance. Then they said, avoid stress. I said, I'm going to be on stage in front of 200 people. <laughs> they said, come back next week. <laughs> so with these stories that I've learned, and I'm not traveling, I gave away the suitcases. Because if I want to see a documentary, I'll watch it from home. And as Dorothy said at the end of the movie, as she clicked her ruby red heels together in The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Thank you. Laura Abbott. I was almost nervous when I realized I've already made the worst possible public speaking mistake, which was um, when I was emceeing my company's end of year holiday in Japan, I called the company president by the wrong name in front of 400 people. So this is cake. <laughs> Unfortunately, my story isn't as uh, funny as that one, though. When I was 13, I didn't really believe that I would make it to 20, either by my own hands or by the hands of my mother and stepfather. And my solution to that fear was to leave. First, I left my mother's house and moved in with my biological father in Boise. Then I moved away from both of my parents to a different college town. And then I moved all the way to Japan, where I finally, finally felt like I could live authentically without fear in a way that was really freeing and actually did feel like home for the first time in my life. But unfortunately, the nightmares that I had about my parents trying to kill me still made it to Japan. And I had regular nightmares of that nature um, until very recently, actually. So four months ago, when I'm ready to board this plane, coming back to the States, it's the right career move. I know it's going to be good for me, but even knowing doesn't really soften that lump in my throat of having to go back, of having to see those people again. But I did it, and here I am. And actually, moving back into my father's house in Boise was relatively easy. I knew that going back to my mother's house during the holidays, however, was going to be significantly more difficult. And it wasn't always that way. You know, when I think back to my childhood, I remember positive moments. Things just started getting weird towards the end of elementary school and the beginning of junior high. 
I didn't really dress the way other girls did. I wasn't really interested in the same things. I remember once I put on some boys' cargo shorts because they had really big pockets, which is great for collecting rocks. Um, but before I could get outside, my mother stopped me and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm gonna go collect some rocks. And she said, those shorts make you look like you have a penis. Go take them off. So I did. Even my stepmom sometimes would really get on me about how I chose to dress. And even though as an adult now, I understand that my parents were being hard on me in this way to prevent me from bullying. At the time, as a child, I felt like they didn't like some inherent part of me. And that was only the first half of the problem. My stepdad also had a really serious anger issue. He did my entire childhood. My siblings and I were pretty afraid of him, actually, and for good reason. The maybe culminating event of his anger was a time that he almost strangled me to unconsciousness. And I never really forgave him for that for understandable reasons. I found out how he felt about gay people when I was 14, when as I was riding in the back of the car with, in our van, he was talking to my mother about a classmate of mine, John, who was fairly effeminate for a guy. And my stepfather said, those people should be hung on a fence and shot. Needless to say, I didn't feel very safe, ever. So I got back to Boise and I thought, I need therapy. <laughs> And it, just as it was easy to move back into my dad's house, it was pretty easy to find a really helpful therapist here in Boise. And unsurprising to all of you here, I'm sure, she diagnosed me with PTSD. And she told me that people are traumatized not by going through adversity. People are traumatized when they go through adversity alone. And that made a lot of sense to me because when I was living in North Idaho with my mom's family, we lived, as I like to say, seven miles from the middle of nowhere and a thousand feet above the nearest town. <laughs> and we were so poor that we actually didn't use gas when we went down the hill. We just kind of got in the car and coasted and hoped. And so I wasn't really allowed to go to friends' houses because we wouldn't have gas to get back up the mountain. I spent a lot of time alone. I'm pretty sure I had cabin fever. I often daydreamed about walking off into the snow and not coming back, among other ways of disassociating and losing myself, either temporarily or permanently. I was very lonely. But I wasn't always that way. Eventually, I met an incredible woman who looked like me, who talked like me, who seemed to have the same interests that I did, she was a camp counselor first and then became a pen pal. And as she shared her life experience, as I realized, oh my gosh, I can make it to 20. <laughs> I can be an adult. I can dress the way that makes me feel comfortable. I can love who I want to love and I can actually be happy. But my parents weren't so jazzed about me meeting this person or talking to this person. And actually, my mom confronted me once um, as we were coasting down the mountain uh, to get to school or some other place. She said to me, 
you know, I just don't like you talking to this woman. You know, she's only five years older than you. Um, she's going into childcare, and she's one of those people, so she must be a pedophile. And I think I inherited some of my stepfather's rage because in that moment, I couldn't stop the words coming out of me. I said, if you're gonna call her those things, then you have to call me those things too because I'm gay. And my mother cried. I don't really remember what she said, but we made it down the mountain. I made it to school that day. But what I remember more about that day was getting off of the bus and coming home. It was in the middle of winter, and if any of you have been to the Silver Valley in North Idaho, it, you know that it snows a lot there. And up the canyon I lived, I'm talking like six feet of snow, y'all. It's, it's no joke. <laughs> so I got off the bus, and I walked in the house, and the lights were dark. There's one light on. I could see up the three stairs from the entryway into the living room. It was my stepfather's desk light. And oh boy, all day I had thought about what I needed to pack because I didn't think I was gonna wake up in this house the following morning. So I walked up the stairs, three stairs. And there he was, sitting at his desk. He said, I heard what you said to your mother in the car this morning. And I want you to know that I'm proud of you. It's always been really hard for me to balance the need to hold my loved ones accountable for the harm that they've done to me. Harm that in very real ways has actually given me trauma that needed to be treated by a licensed professional. To hold that and at the same time hold the ways in which those same people have defended me and loved me. But him saying that one sentence couldn't really make up for a whole childhood of feeling afraid and so shortly after I moved to my dad's house here in Boise. And then I went to college and during that time my stepfather's father died. And even from a distance, I could tell that he was taking it about, just about the worst way you can possibly take a death, unfortunately. He became really despondent. He isolated himself. His anger got worse when he wasn't on his diabetes medication, which wasn't often because we didn't have health insurance. And he didn't really talk to anyone. I saw him, even from a distance, walk right up to that same precipice to look off into those snowy mountains and think about going and not coming back. And then Trump was elected and somebody wrote faggots should die on the house next door and I fled again. I fled as far away as I possibly could to Japan. But now here I am, I'm back. You know, this is, we're in October now. I've been talking to this therapist. I'm really trying to prep myself for going you know, to, to my family's house for the holidays, and I'm worried about my stepdad. I'm worried because you know, in college, when I was being really dramatic about my family situation, I used to say, wow, we better hope that he and my mom never get divorced, because if they do, he's probably gonna kill himself. He won't have anything left. 
Well, last year my mom did divorce him. So my siblings and I were really concerned. The morning that I was supposed to receive treatment for PTSD, I was speaking with them, you know, texting. And we really wanted to make sure that we organized some sort of Christmas meeting schedule so that we could show our dad that we loved him just as much as we loved our mom, that we still wanted him in our life. And the whole point of this PTSD treatment was so that I could do that from a genuine, authentic place so that I could walk into that room and not have the shakes <laughs> and not feel that thing in my throat so that I could not feel the way I did standing at the bottom of those three stairs. And, you know, we made a plan. I went and I had my treatment and let me tell you that really works. I don't get to like promote this very often because I can't be like, hey, you got trauma. But <laughs> if you <laughs> have experienced anything bad in life, I really highly recommend it. As of a little over a month now, I haven't had a single nightmare and a lot less generalized anxiety. So really do get help <laughs> if you need it. <laughs> it was a pretty intense treatment session, I would say. Um, I, I felt really emotionally worn out, and I went home and was waiting for my mom to call me to confirm the details about Christmas that my siblings and I had worked out. So she calls me in, and she picks up the phone, and my stepdad is dead. He's dead. And it didn't make sense to me then. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to me now, actually. Um, the cause of death wasn't immediately clear, and it took nine weeks for them to get us autopsy results. And it still doesn't really make sense to me now because I can't, I don't know, there's just some part of me that can't wrap my mind around a 49-year-old with no pre-existing heart conditions dying from a heart attack, but I guess it happens. And even though I know that, I, it just... It's like a puzzle piece that's just a little bit too big. I can't quite fit it in. It doesn't make sense. And so in the end, I didn't really get the childhood home that I deserved in the first place, and I wasn't really allowed to remake it the way that I wanted to, you know, using my newly gained therapeutic superpowers. I didn't get that either. But I did get something kind of like going home when I went home for the funeral. My three younger siblings are all adults now, and we got to kind of rebuild our relationship. It had been more than five years since I had seen any of them. They're all great, they're fantastic, they're not listening to this at all. <laughs> I found out that my stepdad kept a picture of me in his wallet all of those years later. And I got a chance to tell my family that when I leave Idaho the next time, I'm not going to be leaving home. Actually, I'm going to be going home because I've come back to America because I got a higher paying job. I have a partner in Japan, and we want to get married and buy a house, and we want to have kids, and we need a nest egg for that. And my partner isn't even Japanese, so I might not end up in Japan, she's Filipino, so I might end up in the Philippines, I could end up in America, or maybe Japan is the place, I don't know. I've kind of completely thrown away the idea of home as a geographic place on a map. 
home for me has been healing myself. Home for me has been really trying to close the distance between the people that mean so much to you. Home for me has been slogging through the mud of the past towards the person you want to become. So no, I'm not home yet, but I'm really trying. Thank you. Mr. Kevin Winslow. All right, well, um, first, um, I just want to say thanks. Um, thanks for, uh, to Jump for hosting us, and thanks to the other storytellers who did such a nice job. And thanks to Jody for uh, thinking that my story had enough merit to come up here tonight. And thanks to all of you for showing up for Story Story Night, because I love this event. Um, I've attended many times, but I've never spoken. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad you're all here. So, um, my story is a little bit different from the others in that mine is a little more literal. Um, basically, I'm going to tell you about growing up in Boise, leaving Boise, and the rather circuitous route that I took to come back. Um, I'll, I'll warn you that unlike the other storytellers, there's, uh, there's very little uh, personal discovery in my story. <laughs> and there's possibly no personal growth. <laughs> so uh, this, is just, this is just a rollicking tale. So um, rather than start at the beginning, I'm going to start at what I would call an inflection point. I don't know if that's a real term, but... Um, Anyway, imagine, if you will, a cracker from Idaho, that's me, um, 28 years old, you're loading up a 20-foot U-Haul with all the things you own in the entire world, as well as your girlfriends, and you have two cats and a dog, and you're driving from Boise to New York City to live. And um, that's somewhat daunting. It's a big country. It takes a long time to drive across, especially in a 20-foot U-Haul. Um, when you're stopping to let a dog get out and do its business. Um, but now imagine that you're driving to New York and you have no job and you have no apartment. And this is in the day before cell phones, so yeah. So anyway, that's where I wanted to start. Um, to, to go back to the beginning, um, I, I grew up here. I'm as much of a native as, as I can be. Uh, I was born in San Antonio, but uh, my family brought here when I was an infant. So I'm pretty much a native. Uh, grew up here in the 70s and 80s. Um, and Boise was kind of a cow town. If, if anybody's lived here in the 70s and 80s, it, it wasn't a big city at all. Um, there wasn't a whole lot to do, really, growing up. Um, in high school, you basically had keggers and you got laid. <laughs> and if you were me, you only did one of those things. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was just kind of, I don't know, it was, it was nice. Boise was nice, but it was a little boring. Um, so anyway, um, graduated from uh, Capitol High, uh, took a couple years off, went to the Harvard of the West. Um, some people call that Boise State University. It's right over there. Um, I call it the Harvard of the West, but... Uh, Anyway, got the degree, um, had a girlfriend. Uh, I graduated with my bachelor's, she graduated with her, her master's, and we both wanted to be writers. Uh, she wanted to be a writer because um, she was pretentious and um, uh, a writer of really bad short fiction. And um, 
I wanted to be a writer because it was the only damn thing I was good at. So it's like, okay, what are we gonna do in Boise, Idaho? And it's, the answer was very obvious. We're not gonna be writers in Boise, Idaho. <laughs> so it's like, well, where do we go? And she said, well, I lived in Boston. I like Boston. What do you think about Boston? Fine, let's go check out Boston. So we get to Boston and we're kicking around there. And after about three days, we were both kind of bored. Um, Boston's a big city, but it's a little sleepy, oddly. And it's very provincial. And we were like, I don't know if this is the place. And we were looking at the job market, and the job market was, I mean, better than Boise, but it wasn't thriving. And then we started looking at apartments, and we were looking at grimy little one-bedroom apartments for like 1,800 bucks. And so we started talking, it's like, you know, if we're gonna spend 1,800 bucks in rent, let's go to New York. And it's like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. Let's go to New York. <laughs> So um, the plan was, girlfriend flies out two weeks in advance to get the apartment. And I get the lucky job of packing up the entire apartment, cleaning the entire apartment, packing up the U-Haul, renting the U-Haul, packing up the pets, and driving everything we own out to New York. So um, along the way, there's no cell phones, so I could check in with her at night from the hotel. And every night I called, did you get an apartment? No. Did you get an apartment? No. And, you know, you hit Oklahoma, and it's like, um, I'm going to roll into New York soon, and I got no place to live and no job, you know? And it's like, it's a little daunting. So anyway, get to New York. Um, things work out. Uh, we get an apartment, not a lovely apartment and not a lovely neighborhood, but, uh, but you know, clean, warm, roach-free mostly. Um, and we get jobs. Um, we were writing in the, the online sector, and it, this was in the very early 2000s, and something happened which some of you might remember called the dot bomb. So there was all this speculation, all these sites were launching, and there was all this hype, and it very soon became clear that a lot of these sites did not have a good business plan and had no way to make money. And so there was these ch this churn, these sites were coming and going, so in two years in New York, we had three jobs, my girlfriend and I. And it was funny because we had the same jobs. I would get a job and they'd say, what's your girlfriend doing? And bring her in. And so we, we worked at the same three jobs. So after two years, we had ascended pretty high. We were both senior editors at a, a national news magazine. So things were going well. We weren't making a ton of money. But um, one day I just looked at her and I'm like, hey, um, are you having fun? And she said, you know what, I'm really not. I'm really not having a good time. And I'm like, you know, I'm not really having a good time either. Um, you want to go somewhere? And so all of our parents still lived in Boise, Idaho. And it's like, well, we're not moving back to Boise, Idaho. So it's going to be the West Coast. So is it Portland or is Seattle? And we kind of hemmed and hawed. And it's like, OK, it's Portland. So I call up my best friend, who happens to be in the audience tonight. And I'm like, hey, buddy. We're moving to Portland, and he's like, you're moving to Portland, I live in Seattle, move to Seattle. And so I said, hey, girlfriend, you, you wanna go to Seattle? And she's like, yeah, let's go to Seattle. It's like, okay, well, we're going to Seattle. <laughs> so again, we get the U-Haul, and we load up everything we own, and the two cats and the dog, and now we're driving to Seattle. And uh, I just remember um, the second we crossed the Verrazano Bridge out of Manhattan, both of us just went, we just let out this big sigh, and I just realized how stressful New York had been. 
And so we took I-90, um, which is interesting. God damn, this is a big country. God, it takes a long time to drive. <laughs> and she would be like, we got a detour off to see the Laura Ingalls Wilder house. It's like, that's a three hour. It's like, no, no, we're not gonna do that. And U-Haul has you on a, they only give you a certain amount of days to get there. So it's like, tick tock, honey, we got a, we got a buggy. We can't see the ball of string and we gotta go. So um, the same thing, we, we cross over, we, we see a sign that says now entering mountain time zone. And the same thing, we both whew, just let out this big sigh. It's like, God, we're home. So we roll into Seattle, no job, no apartment again. And uh, things work out. We, uh, we get a nice apartment, we get jobs. Um, she and I ended up going our separate ways not, not long after, but um, I ended up spending 10 years there. And it was about, it's, it's, Seattle's a nice, a nice city. Um, if, if any of you know it, it's basically just a pocket of neighborhoods. And every neighborhood is basically self-contained. You, everything you need is in your neighborhood. You rarely have to go downtown or, so it's, it's nice there. And, and on the rare sunny day, Mount Rainier comes out and you can see Mount Rainier. And so anyway, um, it wasn't until about year seven that um, it kind of started to get to me. Uh, it is gray a lot. It does drizzle a lot. Um, and one day I realized, I'm like, God, I feel good today. I feel really good today. Why do I feel so good? And it's like, oh, because the sun's out. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the sun for like six months. So I'm like, I wonder if it's time to go. So I was dating a woman at the time, and uh, I'm like, what do you think about Boise? And she's like, well, let's, let's go take a look. So we come home to Boise, I drive around, and she's like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not moving to Boise, no. And I'm like, damn. So we make it another three years, and um, girlfriend and I are camping in July outside of Leavenworth, and the first day is gorgeous, just spectacular. It's sunny, we have the campsite to ourselves. Um, next day we, we wake up, it's biblical rain, as it does in July in Washington, in western Washington, and so it's like we're sitting in the tent, and it's like, okay, well, do we sit in the tent all day and play cards, or do we boogie, do we strike camp and get the hell out of here, and so we decided to leave, and, and she asked me, how many days of sun does Boise, Idaho get a year, and I said, well, I, you know, I'm not... Google or Wikipedia, but I think it's like, I don't know, 300? I mean, we get a lot of, I, I see, even in the wintertime, it's sunny, you know, you get beautiful blue skies, and she's like, what do you think about moving back to Boise? And it's like, yeah, all right, I think we will move back to Boise. So um, come out, we did get an apartment this time, but uh, we did not have jobs lined up again. So we pack up the U-Haul with all our stuff, and now three cats, no dog, uh, so now we drive into Boise and, and we get the, the, the apartment and then we get a house and things are good. I've been back 10 years. Um, things are good. My, my beautiful, lovely mother lives here. Um, my son lives here. I have an aunt, an uncle. So I'm entrenched. Um, my lovely girlfriend, her entire family's here. So we're, we, we've got roots. Um, she's a native as well. So, but I'm getting the itch again. <laughs> Um, and, and here's the reason why. Um, so Boise to me is in this weird nebulous zone. So it's not the cow town I grew up in for sure. It's, it's, a, it's a city now, but it's not a big city. 
So, and by that I mean, um, you know, it, of course it's not New York and it's not Seattle. It, it could be a Seattle someday, but you know, there's no, there's no pro sports. We don't have an international airport. We don't have any public transportation. We have a, a good arts community. Um, but it seems like that we're getting to be a big city without the advantages of a big city. And we're starting to get some of the disadvantages of a big city. Traffic is not fun. Um, the cost of living has increased exponentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, case in point, I sold my house in, uh, in the North End uh, December of 2019, so two years ago, uh, for 455. I looked up the Z estimate today, 755. So a $300,000 increase in two years. And it's like, okay, well, that's a good size increase. What has Boise done in the last two years to warrant that kind of increase? Do we have a robust public transportation system? No. Um, we tried to build a stadium, that got struck down. Uh, we tried to improve our, our aging library, that got struck down. Um, the city's in a little tiff with the Boise Art Museum right now. So, um, yeah, starting to look around. And, and Jody and I talked, and what, what he really found interesting was, a couple of months back, I'm driving down what is now the concrete jungle of Myrtle, headed towards Whole Foods. <laughs> I mean, it's just like slab, 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 apartments, apartments, apartments. And I got this weird feeling that, you know, it's like, well, those are like $1,500, $1,600 studio apartments. And I'm not going to be living there. And I just got this feeling, it's like, this town is kind of, whereas I had outgrown Boise, now I feel like this town's kind of passing me by. And it's a weird feeling. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to live in Boise. Um, I, it's not looking like I'll be able to afford a house again. Um, and I'm not paying 1600 bucks for a 400-foot studio. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, there's a song lyric that I like, and it says, the point of a journey is not to arrive. And I feel like um, I haven't arrived. And I feel like um, there's another chapter yet. And uh, the next time I move, I'm going to have a job in an apartment. <laughs> Line up. Um, that's, that's what a wise person does. Um, so anyway, uh, that's, that's my story. Thanks for having me, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to see the storytellers in addition to hearing them, this entire show is available on the Story Story Night YouTube channel. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, and our season sponsor, The Boise Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello. Find out how to participate in our live show at storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.